in your imagination, your imagination, what does the good life look like? What does the good life look like? What does the good life look like for you? So not what does the, what is like the cultural tilt of the United States seem to imply that the good life is through cinema. I'm not asking that. Or through politics or the media, whatever, none of that. I'm not asking what your parents think the good life is for you. In your imagination, in your desires, what does the good life look like? So much of what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in his fiction and nonfiction, and even letters, like we'll see in this letter, um, so much of what he speaks about is homesickness, and I think that might be one of the reasons why he's one of my favorites. Um, and that's one of my favorite things to dwell on, is, is homesickness, longing, desire for home. Uh, the words in our text tonight would say a better country. And tonight, my hope is that, you, that, that, that those things, that homesickness, that desires for something greater, that longing for a better country, would be so large in us that we would be unwilling to settle for anything less. Lord, have mercy, and may that be true. Send your spirit among us. Uh, invite us to deeper waters than we've ever been inside of us. Help us to recognize in our bones a memory of a place we've never even been. I pray that your word comes alive through this and that it's a real help to my friends in this room. And that, Lord Jesus, you finish all the work that you start and bring us to the end. May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the people of God, like each of us, They've always had a vision of the good life. Now, I realize you might not be able to put specific words to that, but we all have operating understandings of what it means to live a good life, to have the good life. And the people of God are no different. A, a working definition of what it looks like to be blessed, and this largely begins for them in Genesis chapter 12, going all the way back. Genesis chapter 12 is, it's like, I should say Genesis 12, so it's, it's a little bit clearer for you. Genesis 12 is like chapter 1 in the story of God's people. Genesis 12 is like chapter 1. I know it's 12 chapters in, but the first 11 chapters are, are the introduction. It's the prologue. It's the prologue for all of us, in fact, um, and it's a goldmine for so many questions and curiosities that we have that many people who start reading the book of Genesis never even get to chapter 6 because there's too many things to talk about in the first few chapters. But in Genesis chapter 12, the camera zooms in on this nomadic man named Abram. And here's what we read. Would you put up Genesis chapter 12 for us, verses 1 through 3? If you've got Bibles, it's going to be helpful to open them up. We're going to be in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, mostly in Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. We'll have some stuff on the screen too. This is what happens in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, his name was Abram at this point. God likes changing names. Uh, uh, God, I think I wrote God in my thing. Good, it says go. Um, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So all all of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, God's people, all all those, by the way, if you don't know, those are interchangeable words for much of the story of God's people. 
Israelites and Hebrews and Jews, they're, they're sort of, um, these names sort of evolve as they grow and they're known by other cultures or whatever, but these are all the same people, okay? Um, whatever you want to call them, it starts here in this passage. This is where it starts. This is where the, the Hebrews start, the Israelites, the Jews start, right here in this very moment. Where do they come from? There's a guy named Abram in a place called Haran, maybe. It depends on which text you read. It depends if you're reading Acts or it depends if you're reading Genesis. Uh, and, 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 uh, and God says, you, you, I'm choosing you. Go to a place I'll show you. Go, Abram, that's the command. Just go. Where? Where is Abram supposed to go? Well, we don't know that yet. And maybe Abram doesn't either. It seems like he doesn't if you keep reading the text later. It strikes me that this is a story that's often repeated in the testimonies of God's people throughout time. This call to move into vague and uncertain places. Perhaps that is something God is doing in your life right now. He tends to do this a lot. He might be asking you to go, and you say, where? And he says, I'll show you. Get your butt up and get out the door. This is what God does with Abram. And God promises to bless him, to make his name great, to make a great nation of him, and to bless all the families on the earth through him. And for a while in Genesis, like every other chapter has some aspect of this promise kind of unfolded or nuanced in different ways. In Genesis 15, if you could throw that one up, Keely, that'd be great. God calls Abram to walk outside and look up at the stars. And, and, and God says, look toward heaven, Abram, and number the stars if you are able to number them. God likes sarcasm. Just read the Gospels. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's a lot of pronouns in there. God's, God brought Abram outside, look up at the stars, count the stars if you can. That's how, that's how numerous your descendants will be. Another, another passage he talks about his descendants being as, if you, as the dust on the earth. They will be as numerous as dust on the earth. The imagination and hopes of the people of God, the Israelites, were shaped by these promises. These promises frame their imagination of what the good life is. A place where our name and people are great, where the children of Abram are as numerous as the dust of the earth or the stars of the sky, and all the families on the earth are blessed through us. So if a devout Israelite, a couple thousand years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, something like that, was, was asked the same question I asked you just a few minutes ago, hey, pull out this paper and use a pencil, whatever, um, they may have written down something like that. They might have pulled out a pen and went, what is the definition of the good life? My name, Great. The nation, great. Descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. All the families on the earth blessed because of us and through us. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? And, and though this, my, my suspicion is that very few of us, maybe none of us, wrote anything even close to that big. That might be what they wrote. That was their vision of the good life. And, and though this happens at various times and in various ways, there's one season where all the promises of God in the eyes of the Israelites seem to come together. It's the time of Saul and David and Solomon. It's the golden age, so to speak, of the Israelites. Does anybody um, have a Bible? Anybody have a physical Bible I can use real quick? Well, thanks, man. Thicker the better. Uh, only for this exercise, not because in general it matters. Whatever translation you have is totally fine. <laughs> so many jokes. Um, all right. 
I want to show you a visual. I often, I like doing this visual. So, um, you, can you see how, uh, like, the, can you see the width of this Bible or the depth of it anyway? How, whatever, thick this way it is. See that? Okay. So, this right here is how much time the Israelites had in their golden age. That's the golden age. Where they're in the land with the kings, 120 years. And, and a matter of fact, um, if you want to keep reading the rest of the Old Testament, just so you know how much of the Bible is the Old Testament, that's the New Testament, right there. All this is the Old Testament, and that's how much is in the Golden Age. You with me? Lock that in your head, okay? Um, I actually don't know in my notes if I'll come back to that, but I might get off on some tangents, and it'll be fun. Um, but, uh, but, but for many of us, I'll su I submit to you, and I may actually repeat something like this later as we go throughout the sermon, but for many of us, our Golden Age is about this thin, and we remember it poorly, like it was bigger and like it was better than it ever was. But that's their golden age. It happened. God promised the name would be great, the descendants would be numerous as the stars in the sky, that the, 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 the nation would be great, and it happened. Israel has spent so much time looking forward to that golden age, up before that moment, only to see it vanish like smoke. Three kings, boom, 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 gone. And then they spend so much time after that fact, still probably the majority of the Bible, in fact, they look back on that, wanting to be there again when it wasn't even that good to begin with. And I wonder how much that is the story of our lives too. How much of our lives are spent working for or looking to things which won't satisfy and won't last, and, and then once they're gone, we wish we were back there again. The author of Hebrews, one of the larger books in the New Testament, talks a lot about what the Old Testament has to do with us today. It's a riveting book. If you don't know the Old Testament, it's hard to read, but it's also a good introduction to the Old Testament, which is sort of weird chronologically, but anyway. Um, our, pr our primary text tonight is from the book of Hebrews, um, beginning in chapter 11. We'll read some in 11 and move to the beginning of 12. Hebrews 11, uh, verses 12 through 16 Therefore, from one man, Abraham, that's who he's talking about. If you read right before that, he's talking about Abraham. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as in the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. We already read some passages. What is this author referring to when he says this? What is this author referring to? What's this author doing here? He's calling up these ancient promises of God that one day the descendants of Abram would be like the stars of the heaven, and the author says, look, it actually happened. It already happened a thousand, a thousand years ago, or 1,500 years ago from this moment. It already happened. And look at the next verse. But these all, who? All these innumerable descendants these, the, that were as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the dust on the earth, they all died in faith. Surprise. I don't know what Abram thought was going to happen or, or his son or his son's son or his son's son's son or all of the women who matter but aren't mentioned often. Uh, I don't know what all of them were thinking it would look like when the promises were fulfilled. But the author of Hebrews says, oh look, there it is. They're innumerable as the stars of the sky and, and, and the dust on the earth. And then what happened? They died. <laughs> they died in faith, which is a, a, a real big, this would be a surprise moment if you were paying attention to the movement of the text. 
And what did they do? That not having received the things promised, even though it looked like they did, because they were already numerous as the stars of the sky, they hadn't received it. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that, and, and, is that right? Did I write this down weird? Where are we? I think I wrote it down weird. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Okay, that sounds weird the way I read it. Um, listen, it could seem like the promises were fulfilled. There were moments in Israel's history where they looked around and they were like, I think we can check some boxes here. I'm praying for peace and I have a kind of peace. I'm praying for belonging and I have a kind of belonging. I'm praying for, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the things are. A, a, a direction and I got some direction. Praying for our descendants to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I don't think we dream that big. But friends, that's not big enough. I'm praying that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through me and my tribe. That's not enough. They had this moment where they saw things like this happening. But the people, the very people who saw these things and who lived during these times, they died. Not as people who received the promises and then said, yes, it is as good as promised. They died in faith, living like strangers and exiles, which is interestingly one of the most strange and appropriate postures for the Christian to adopt in this life. As, as, actually, I think there's actually almost a riff off of, because this was being written in a dominant Greek culture, there might be a riff off of Odysseus in this case. What does it look like to be a strange and an exile, but to still be a steward and a master at the same time? If you haven't read the Odyssey, it's because you don't read, because you're supposed to, uh, in school. Um, so that, that seemed like a, uh, I don't play sports, uh, t-ball hit. Uh, Go Seahawks. Anyway, um, let's, let's move on, Jason. Okay, um, uh, let's see. Here we go. For the people. We're here now? Yeah, right here in the middle. For people. For people who speak like this, people who speak like we didn't receive what's promised, we greet it from afar, we live like strangers and exiles. For people who do that, they make it clear that they're seeking something else. If I refuse to call this the satisfaction, if I refuse to say all the promises have been made here, if I refuse to do that, if I, if I refuse to say I'm satisfied and I'm done, I'm telling you that I'm not satisfied still and I want something else. The author of Hebrews says that they were looking for a homeland. Why? Because one of the most central promises for the people of God is place. It's a place. Because your body matters and place matters and don't you forget it. Or if you've never heard it, learn about it. Place matters. They, they were longing for a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, then they just would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Think about an inn or a hotel for a minute. An inn or a hotel. It's a lot like a home, isn't it? I mean, in many ways. You got beds. You got uh, bathrooms and showers. You have uh, protection from the elements. There's food. Often it's really convenient. Room service. There's usually only one bill instead of many. You just leave towels on the floor, or I do. I feel guilty, so I kick them into like a pile thinking I'm really doing a service to the cleaning people. Uh, but, but like a hotel isn't a home. Do you understand that? Hope, Cody was telling me, um, that at a federal level, anyone who's living in a hotel is actually legally considered homeless. She backed it up with proof because she's in college and she cites things. Um, 
But check it out. They have a bed. They have a shower. They have a roof, but it's not a home. I actually spent three months of my life living in a hotel. Uh, little known fact, I've lived in like dozens and dozens of places. Uh, I feel like, um, like Kirsten, I'm often worried that you think I just make stuff up for my life because I feel like there's like weird stories that just come out randomly that I forget. Uh, I think you're up there, and if not, I'm looking at a light. Um, anyway, uh, but there were three months of my life when I lived in Omaha, Nebraska, where I lived in this um, hotel for three months, and it was rad as a kid because we just swam in the pool all the time and smoked cigarettes behind the dumpster. Um, and uh, that's where the vice started. And, um, uh, but it wasn't home. And even as a, I was, I guess I was going into third grade. It was a summer between second and third grade. And so I, I, during that summer, I knew this was not the place that was a home. I could feel that even as a kid. It was awesome. Like I loved room service. I loved all the, loved it. Okay. But it wasn't home. Hotels are marvelous as temporary stops as substitutes for a moment, right? Like my wife and I recently had the chance to stay overnight at the West End downtown, and we were so looking forward to that for a brief change just for a minute. But even after one night, we couldn't wait to go home. Tents, inns, a friend's couch, hotels, great as respites sometimes, horrible as homes. Reflecting on homesickness and our, our desire for security in particular, for security in particular. C.S. Lewis says this. If you want to put that quote up, I just think this is one of the best from him. I think about this all the time. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I think about how cool, I, I think back like Lord of the Rings times or which didn't exist uh but whatever i feel like that's like you know back like in the 50s when like elves were running around uh um i think about when i think of like this language that he's using i'm thinking about like a, a medieval uh elven land hotel where there's like mead which i've never had and i don't know what it tastes like and and there's a hearth which i think is a big fire thing and there's music and and meat and a loud noise, whatever. And I think, man, that would be really cool for a moment, but imagine if somebody never left. Imagine if you're um, going on a hike on the, on the Appalachian Trail, which would be rad to do for a, a few months if you liked um, being healthy and those kinds of things. Um, and, uh, and at one point along the way, you stopped at a hostel and you said, this is good enough. And then you just never left. I think actually there are people like that. Um, but it's not, that's not desirable. That's not a home, especially if your goal is to go the whole distance and you gave up on the journey. But there are these moments, and if you've ever been on a long hike or something like that, you know these moments. How awesome it is to have stops. Places where you can be refreshed. Places which, um, which give you a foretaste of what's to come. Places which help you take the next leg of your journey because it's really hard to endure. A good job, a house, a marriage, kids, financial success. Lower level, I would say, a great night with friends, a short-term mission trip, a retreat where the Saturday night worship music is really dope, an amazing date. These are just pleasant ends, not home. Sometimes they're even unpleasant ends, but they're not home. One of, the, one of the hardest pills for my, my, my wife and I to swallow is that we vowed to be married until one of us dies. But we're tempted to make our marriage the salvation for both of us and for the whole world. 
And so even though we vowed that, I think there was a part of us on our wedding day that was like, I know I'm saying until death, but I don't mean it. I mean forever. But it's just until death, because I can't control forever. I don't know that. Jesus has some pretty emphatic things to say about marriage uh, in that regard. But, but that's, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I'm not somebody who's above these temptations. I'm tempted to make the ends home. To see this job not as a temporary stop on the way but to see it as, as the thing which ought to satisfy me forever. My friendships, not just as a moment of splendid bliss that God gives me for a moment and them for a moment, and we ought to respond to it by saying thank you and then getting up the next day and pressing on. My temptation is to cling to it and never let it go. The author of Hebrews well, let me step back just a minute to tie it into something you wrote earlier. When, you ask, when I ask the question, what's the good life? My suspicion is that for many of us, whatever we think the good life is, whatever we wrote down, it's just a pleasant inn. No, but it could be a terrible home. The author of Hebrews tells us that the Israelites who held on to their faith resisted settling for anything less. They longed for a homeland that is a better country. And if you see the end of the text, would you go back a slide, Keely, real quick? If you see the end of the text here at the very bottom, do, do you know that the, because for some of us, it, it may be looking forward, but for some of us, we have this idealism looking back. We have like a nostalgia. We remember things as if it were so good back then. Um, listen, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you know that the people of God do not long to go back to a garden? They look forward to a city God is preparing Let's keep going in our text. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. We're skipping a bit here. And all these, the author of Hebrews combs through like all these people who by faith like looked at the horizon and saw the promises of God on the horizon, but they didn't receive it and they didn't give up. And they didn't give up. And he goes through this list of all these people who've lived this life having received a promise but not received its satisfaction, but they held out hope and had faith. And he says, all these people here, he says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, he turns the camera now, all of us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Friends, God has prepared something better for you. The final security and peace and satisfaction that you long for you will not finally have until we receive it together. So unless you wrote on the back of that paper the new heavens and the new earth, whatever else you wrote is a pleasant inn at best. A stop along the way. Turn your paper over if you got it, and I want you to read this letter real quick, okay? Um, Dear Mary Willis, this is terrible news. The doctor who refused to come would, I think, be liable to criminal prosecution in this country. Pain is terrible, but surely you need not have fear as well. Can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? You've long attempted, as none of us does more, a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Remember, though we struggle against things because we're afraid of them, it is often the other way around. We get afraid because we struggle. Are you struggling 
resisting? Don't you think our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace, relax, let go. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Let go, I will catch you. Do you trust me so little? Of course, this may not be the end. Well then, make it a good rehearsal. Yours, and like you, a tired traveler near journey's end, Jack. He went by Jack, if you didn't know. Interestingly enough, um, Miss uh, Willis lived 12 more years. C.S. Lewis died four months later. There are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. This is a very famous, often misquoted um, saying of Lewis. Usually it's, uh, there are far, far better things ahead. It's not that badly quoted, but that's where it's from. And it strikes me, though, that because of that she would live for another 12 years, or I began thinking anyway, what would she have remembered, if anything, from this letter? And I wonder if it was his recommendation to treat this like a good rehearsal. Because she didn't die. And I wonder if on your deathbed, if you're like, I, I don't have anything else to cling to, all the stuff I might write on the back of this paper is not op- no options for me anymore. I'm about to die. Well, well then, I, I think the, the overwhelming tilt of that letter to not be afraid and to trust God seems wise. But what if all of a sudden I have the chance to have another 12 years? What do I write on the back of the paper then? And Lewis's wisdom to her is, if this isn't the end, make it a good rehearsal. Friends, I I told you earlier, I don't want you to settle. I can't even begin to tell you. I'm going to try just now, but I'll stop short. Uh, uh, How much I want for you not to settle. You guys settle so much. Our desires are too small. Our questions are too timid. Our fears are too tempered. Our hopes for the good life are just a stop along the way, but we feel like we're asking for too much. Israel and the promised land is what I'm thinking about as I'm thinking about all this. Do you know how many people of Israel longed to be in the promised land? This was the ringing hope on their ears, if only we could get there. And when they got there, it didn't satisfy them. And when some of them did actually come back, they got kicked out at some point, basically. And when some of them did come back, they complained that it wasn't what it used to be. But then it was never like it used to be in their imagination. There were things to learn in the land. What would it look like to follow God in this place? To be a light to the nations, to love God and to love others? And in that, in, in that sense, it would have been a good rehearsal. But it wasn't enough. It was never intended to be. It was intended to be a rehearsal. God, through his people, setting up categories that his son Jesus would later fulfill. We'll see that. In case you don't know, we're going to talk about Jesus every night, but we're going to have a whole night where we talk about him, which we are every night, but we're also having a whole night where we talk about him in another way, I guess, coming up. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll be able to see some of this stuff. And as we move forward, because I can't help it in talking about a promised land, when you move forward and look to the end of the scriptures and you see something like the book of Revelation, the, which is a vision that many of you probably have never read, 80% of Revelation is Old Testament. 80% of it. All the things that are being talked about and done are, are, are God saying, see, I'm this master storyteller who set up all of these things early on to show you how I can fulfill them all. And like a hotel bed is like a bed at home, but it's not. A, a bathroom at a hotel is like a bathroom at home, but it's not because it's not yours. You're just visiting there's other things about it, and, and if you were to mistake it, you, you kind of lose both. You lose the perspective on both. And God, God had the promised land is a little like the hotel, which is 
probably never been said before. It's probably really base to say it. The problem is it sounds like a hotel. Anyway, um, it was a rehearsal. Tonight, I want you to see that what you wrote on the back of your card, whatever sufferings you're going through, whatever joys you're experiencing, they're rehearsals. And I want you to grow homesick and not settle. I want you to long for a better country, which is a weird thing to ask. It's a counterintuitive thing to ask if you're feeling overwhelmed by midterms and you're tired and you feel like the opportunities for new friendships and romance have worn off from the semester and now decisions are have to be made for the next semester and you, you're looking forward to the holidays but also not looking forward to the holidays and you want to hide under the covers. All, if all of those things are starting to creep up, it's a weird time for somebody to maybe ask you to do more, but I think that's precisely what you need is not to be told, you know what, just mail it in, just give up, just settle for what you got, just get a D. You know what, just skip the class. Why don't you just eat fast food from here on out? Don't worry about eating healthy. Now's a great time, gentlemen, ladies, you probably do too, but this is a bit sexist. Uh, buy your video games. You know, I, this is, I think this is precisely the time to, to say, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. Long for something more, not just for a B, not even just for good grades, not for the lack of loneliness. When you begin to start asking for God to bless all the nations through you, we're close. Here's how the author of Hebrews says to do this, how to live as if we're longing for something more, how to live like this is a dress rehearsal for the real show and not the whatever. He says this, if you, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, somewhere in here, okay? Um, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How many of us, even in the past few weeks, have asked for clarity from God? Or time? because, Lord, I don't have any. But, friend, you have been given the exact amount of time you need. And you don't need clarity. According to the author of Hebrews, you need endurance. That's what you need. You need to lift your eyes to the horizon to something better, to what God has actually promised, and to not give up so dang easily. Do not give up so easily. This wouldn't be said if we weren't prone to give up so easily. Paul at a later, and later, as actually Paul in another a book of the Bible in Galatians says, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture, do not grow weary of doing good. Of course he says that because we grow weary. Even I think in C.S. Lewis's letter, he even said, I'm a tired and weary traveler with you, you know? You don't need clarity, you need endurance. To not give up so easily. And if any weight or sin is clinging to you, Slowing you down or holding you back, you are invited to lay it aside and run on, friend. And then, of course, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So here's potentially four things, although that's one too many for a sermon um, usually. But the first one is you're not alone. There's all these people who've come before you that they did not get, receive what was promised. They're holding out in faith just like you are to hold out in faith. Because it's not just about you, it's about all of us. And now that you are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses who's gone before you, throw off everything that's holding you back and slowing you down. What is slowing you down? What weight or sin is clinging to you and making it harder for you to run with endurance? 
That's a gracious language, by the way. The author of Hebrews isn't saying like, you terrible person who is sinning. He's assuming you're actually under some bondage from certain things. What do you need to throw off? In the image of a, of a race, you can see why that language is helpful. If you're trying to run a race, don't you want light things on? If there's things that are holding you back and slowing you down, lay them aside, and what you need is to endure. To endure. And your eyes should be fixed in one spot while you endure, and it's Jesus. You need those things, not clarity. I don't mean for that to sound patronizing. I think we all ask for clarity. There's a famous story of this gentleman. Maybe it was Richard Foster or something. I don't know. You probably don't know the names. But there's this, um, I don't remember who it was anyway. Um, there's this famous story that I can't even quote well. Uh, apparently it's so famous. Where this guy went to visit Mother Teresa um, to spend two weeks with her in Calcutta. And, and, and he was going to ask her one question. And he was so excited to ask her. He'd been praying about it, thinking about it. Uh, journaling about it on his plane and when he got there she said you know my son um what are you doing here why did god call you here and he says i've come seeking clarity and she goes oh great well why don't you work with me for two weeks and i will meet with you again when we're done and he thought that was frustrating but he worked with her for two weeks and when he came back into her office um she said well you know how was it and i forget exactly the context of their whole con- the content of their conversation but um but she said um son you don't need clarity you need faith and he got on a plane and he went back <laughs> uh and and he it was uh, impactful enough for him that he wrote it in a book. I wish I could tell you which book it was. Um, maybe I'll post it on Facebook or GroupMe or something. I don't know. Um, uh, but but I, I think we need the same thing. We need faith. Holding out hope for something that we probably won't receive in a job, in, in, a, in a grade in school, in a certain amount of money in our bank account, in a girlfriend or boyfriend, in a marriage one day, in a couple of kids, in, in a couple of dogs or cats, if you like them. I, I like them, fine. Um, I'm saying things weird tonight, sorry. Um, we need to hold out hope for something more than all those things. All who came before us did not receive what was promised, and yet, and yet, and neither will we until God has brought all things under the feet of Jesus. So whatever lesser definitions of the good life we have, they will not satisfy us, and I pray that God forbids them to satisfy us, I pray that you grow homesick for greater things, that you desire more than you ever, than you ever have. That, that if, you, if you, in sermons or, or in, in reading the Bible on your own or in pondering the story of God's people, all of which are, are fun things to do for me, um, and I encourage you to do them, uh, when you come across the story of God's people, I invite you to see them in the promised land as a rehearsal of what's to come. I invite you to see them not as a, as a failed destination, but as, a, as an inn along the way. And, and, and see in their story something that God is doing in your story. He is right now giving you sufferings and glories. He is right now put desires on your heart. He will be giving you in the next season, before Christmas even, and in the next semester, he will be giving you things which are to exist as rehearsals, as stops along the way. But he wants your eyes fixed on the horizon so that the next morning you get up and you get out the door and you keep going. And you don't settle for something less than what God has promised. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I pray that you are satisfied with nothing less. If you're interested in following Jesus, 
or you're wondering what God has in store for you right now, I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that God is probably inviting you to desire greater things than you've ever desired yet. Let's take a minute to think about that. Respond to him in prayer if you want. There's a prayer team in the back to the left, um, my left, um, if you'd like somebody to pray with you. Um, I'm, I'm quite convinced that, you know, when the word is proclaimed, when we get around and talk about Jesus, what he's not very interested in is our evaluations. You know, like if you walk out the door and you're like, that was a good sermon, or that was a bad sermon, whatever. Uh, respond to Jesus. Respond to Jesus. He's alive and working right now. God's Spirit has drawn close to you and is inviting you. Um, I, I, in light of this text, this is a good metaphor, he's inviting you to join in the race of all of his people, to have your eyes fixed on the horizon, throw off sin, and to endure. And so it'd be a great thing for you in the next minute to consider what is God inviting you to do in light of that? And if you want to go pray with somebody to have them help you do business with God, to talk to you about that, that that's great. If you want to pray by yourself, that's great. You got paper and golf pencil to write some thoughts down if you want to do that. Um, but spend like a minute maybe in prayer or just thinking about those things um, and, and then uh, we'll do communion together and close out the night.